You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 5, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Um, while you're turning to there or, or flipping to that or however you're getting there, um, so as Raymond mentioned, if we hear that balloon pop, don't worry about it. Uh, I'm thankful to Ryan and Jess Tingle for setting up that area out in our entryway today. It's an opportunity for you to have a, a family photo or an Easter photo. And uh, rather than us have a photographer there to take them, we, we're just encouraging you to hand over your cell phones to us and we'll take the photo for you. And Ryan and Jess did that prior to the service. My daughter Katie will be out there after the service to assist you in that as well. And if, if, if you don't have one of those newfangled phones that takes photos, we'll be glad to take one for you and get it to you, okay? Uh, but we just wanted to have that opportunity for you to have that remembrance today. First Peter 1, 3 through 5, if you've, if you've already looked in your bulletin, you'll see that the title of today's message is Sacred Space or Sacred Life. And that may seem strange to you, may seem an odd title to you, because as we read verses 3 through 5 here in just a moment, there's nothing really written about a sacred space. So you may think, well, where did he get this title from today? When Peter opens up his letter, he begins in 1 Peter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Some of your translations read to the pilgrims of the dispersion, the strangers scattered, God's chosen people living as foreigners. However it's stated, the implication is the same. Peter's writing to people who had been removed from their homelands. They'd been scattered. And part of that scattering that sometimes I think we don't maybe always take into consideration is that scattering meant that their places of worship were no longer in their lives. We know from reading the New Testament that the New Testament early church met in homes, but most of the time the reason for that was because that sacred space that they had once been a part of now was no longer either because of their geographical location or perhaps just in a situation where they weren't allowed to worship in that space anymore now that they were following Jesus. And so that that struck me as I was preparing for Easter because the reality of it is, I think in our culture, we have done a really good job of creating sacred space. I don't know that we've done a great job of creating sacred life. Sacred meaning set apart, set apart for a different purpose, set apart specifically, biblically speaking, for the, the purpose of God and his kingdom and his mission. And so we create sacred space for that, but the Bible is really calling us to think larger than a location and to think more in terms of our lives as being sacred lives. And that comes about as a result of this, what we're going to read today, that we are born again. The last couple years and the interruptions of our flows of natural rhythm and the things that we're used to um, have certainly revealed quite a lot about us as a culture, both church culture and otherwise. One of the things it revealed to us, not just us specifically, but across the board through this nation and through other parts of the world, is that we who follow Jesus were ill-prepared for a moment when we could not come and gather. That should spur us. To our future. 
To be reminded that following Jesus and being born again and living by the power of the Spirit is not because we come to a place on 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings, but it's because of who he has made us to be in him. And if there never exists another sacred space for Christians on this earth, the sacred lives that we live and that we have together with one another in community is more than enough to see God's kingdom come. So let's read the passage. We're going to read 3, 4, and 5, but really today from a preaching standpoint, I'm going to focus on verse 3. After his introduction, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So our first issue of being born again, again, we're going to strictly deal with verse three today, but our first issue of being born again is this, that we've been born again by God's mercy and his will for us to be born again. He says, according to his great mercy. Why has God done what he has done. Why has he sent Jesus to actually come in and divide history? For history is divided from before he came till, uh, up until his birth. Why has God done this? Why has Jesus, Jesus chosen to do that willingly? Why does the Holy Spirit now work in the world to convict mankind of their sins and their repentance and move them to faith? It's out of God's great mercy. That little phrase, according to, is a word that has two implications. One is a direction, down or downward, and the second is proportion. And so when we think about God's great mercy coming down to us, it is that his mercy came downward from heaven to earth through the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the way Paul uh, kind of grasps that in Titus 3, beginning verse 4 through 7. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It is, a, it is a picture, it is a word picture, it is an image of God's mercy. Literally, if you wanted to think about a huge, huge vat or reservoir or pitcher of God's mercy, it is that being poured out onto his creation according to downward from his heavenly heights onto all mankind through Jesus Christ. It has that implication of down or downward. It has the implication of proportion. What does that mean? Well, if you're a billionaire and you give away $10,000 to a person, you've given a portion of your wealth. But if you're a billionaire and you hand someone $5 million, you've given to them proportionately out of your wealth. Do you see the difference? And so God did not simply give us a portion of his mercy and grace he did not simply give us a scrap of it 
He proportionately gave it to us in that he gave to us out of his abundance mercy, abundant mercy. And that is indeed what Peter says here. According to his great mercy. Great here, not necessarily describing the feeling we get from mercy, but describing the quantity of mercy. That God's mercy is great, it is unfathomable, it knows no bounds, it has no, has no boundaries to it. And he's poured that out on us through Jesus Christ. What is his great mercy? It's expressed pity. What is God's mercy on me? What is God's mercy on you? It is the demonstration of the expression of his pity for us. You can have pity on someone that you see in need, but until you act upon it, you do not show them any mercy. You may see someone on a, on a street corner, on a sidewalk in your neighborhood, and you may recognize and just be able to say, yes, they have a need, and I have pity on them, I have compassion on them, I have sorrow for them. But until you act on that and actually do something to relieve that need, it does not become mercy. And so according to his great mercy, him seeing us, him seeing us in our sinfulness, him seeing us in our situation, him seeing us fully and forever separated from him, he pours out his mercy proportionate to the greatness of it. Peter says there in verse 3, he's done this, and by virtue of doing this, he has caused us to be born again. He has, he has caused us to be born again by his mercy. He's causing us to be born again by his will. Some translations say he has begotten us or hath begotten us or has given us new birth. It, it all means the same thing. It means to be made new. It means to be born again. All of that phrasing, when, when the words of, of the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the translations occur, all translations have to provide fillers for us to understand it. Because in the Greek, that's just one simple word for being born again. And so if they were just to translate that as just one word in the English language, we would, we would not understand what he's saying here. But for him to say, the translators to add for us, he has caused us. Or in the, in the older, he hath begotten us. It's a demonstration in that language that it is something that God does. It's something that he does through his Holy Spirit. Imagine if you were able to, to, to be physically reborn. Imagine for, for a moment if you were able to rewind or have that second opportunity. And you were able to say, this time, I want all the stuff that's wrong with me fixed. So this time when I'm born, I don't ever want to have to put contacts in again or wear a pair of glasses. This time when I'm reborn, I want to be taller, better looking. Thinner. Like we, we could, if we had that possibility of being physically reborn and saying, take everything that's wrong with me or everything that just doesn't function right and make it new. Now take that imagery and add it to the spiritual component of being born again. This is what God does when he causes us to be born again by his great mercy poured out through Jesus Christ. He takes all that is sinful in me. He takes all that is sinful in you. He takes all that is sinful and broken within every person who has ever lived. And he makes us new. He causes us to be born again. And it is a work of the Spirit of God. This is God doing something in us that we cannot do ourselves. 
There's no amount of good works any person can do to achieve this. There's no amount uh, of familial line of heritage within your scripture or within your uh, family of being church people or going to church or teaching in church. There's nothing any of us can do from our own perspective that can lead us to be born again. And this was spoken of in the Old Testament. This is not just a New Testament piece. In Ezekiel in chapter 36 Verses 25 through 27, this is what the Lord says. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean from all your uncleanliness and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. All the way back in the Old Testament, in multiple places, God is foreshadowing what would happen for people once his son came. And lived the perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and then was resurrected. That he would begin to create new New Testament-wise, born-again persons. And again, there's nothing that any of us can do. There's no magic formula. There's no magic uh, thing you can recite to be born again. There's nothing wrong with expressions of faith. There's nothing wrong with um, being able to verbally say or state how you feel about Jesus and God. There's nothing wrong with, for example, something called the sinner's prayer. But understand that simply saying that does not mean you're born again. There's some who would say, well, doesn't, doesn't Paul say somewhere about confessing with your mouth? He does, Romans 10. Verses 9 and 10, for example, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But understand this, you can't read Romans 10 without reading Romans 8. And what Romans 8 tells us in preparation for Paul's words in Romans 10 is something like this, beginning in verse 9 and 10. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. It is a work of God, it is a work of His Holy Spirit to convict us, to move us to that verbal confession and repentance and saying that, yes, we want to believe. If you want to think about it like this, it's the Holy Spirit of God applying to the person the work that Jesus supplied for them. And it results in us being born again. And the difficulty here is this, if you try to live as the Bible calls us to live, if you try to live as Jesus calls us to live, if you try to live as Paul writes in Romans 8, that we are, begin, we are beginning to be conformed to his image, if you try to do that without actually being born again, it's like having a $100,000 race car with no engine. Oh, it looks shiny. And parked on the street, it'll turn heads. And people will admire it. The moment you step on the gas, there's nothing. We cannot live who we are meant to be without being born again. God has caused us, according to his great mercy, to be born again. Secondly, out of verse 3, we're born again to what? He says we are born again to a living hope. 
Here, living is an adjective form. It's, we know it can be a verb. You could say to someone, I am currently living in Frankfurt. But here, it's an adjective to describe the hope that we have. And therefore, it means that the hope that we have has power. It has meaning. It has effect. It's active. It's not dead hope. It's not hope without any possibilities. It is a hope that extends to us and extends through us. And it becomes the living hope as we understand, is Jesus. He is the only hope we have. A few decades ago in a grand movie theater, you may have watched Princess Leia lean over to a robot and say, Obi-Wan Kenobi, help us, you're our only hope. It was a good movie scene, but it was theologically wrong. Because the only hope you have is Jesus. The only hope any of us have of getting through this life and and coming through this life with some sort of, of recognition that there's more to life than we see is Jesus. And he is the one who we see rescuing us throughout all of our life if you think about a, a sinking swimmer and one who's floundering about I've actually um, had the fortune thankfully um, to pull someone in from a spot in the ocean one time when they were caught in a riptide and God blessed me and graced me in that moment with the ability to get them and to get them to shore before something happened and that lady has told me multiple multiple times how much she remembers the panic that she had, but when she saw that I was able to get to her, how much that panic turned to hope. When we see Jesus, we see that hope coming, and that's what we've been born again, to that living hope. There's no earthly hope. There's nothing that you and I can place any hope on in this world, uh, not in uh, parties and systems and political ideas, not in interest rates and stock markets, not in the, the right house or the right career or anything else. All of that stuff is temporary. It is not eternal. Living hope is eternal hope. Living hope is not temporary hope. Living hope is eternal hope. And eternal hope is not a hope so but it is a sure hope. Eternal hope is not my fingers crossed, but my hands raised in praise to the one who has done this for me. Eternal hope is not a maybe, but a promise. My kids have a running joke that if they ask me if we can go anywhere or do anything, and I say maybe, they know that really means no. Jesus doesn't work in maybes. Jesus works in yeses. George MacDonald wrote it this way. He said, God would never show us a thing he did not mean to give us. He would never show you and I this idea of a living hope if he did not intend to follow through on it. Friday night, we had our Good Friday service. And as part of that service, uh, the theme of our Good Friday service was lament and understanding what lament means that it's a it's a particular type of grief or sorrow that drives us to uh, God and to petitioning before God and ultimately trusting in God and it's a it's really a, a spiritual discipline that Christians ought to do better at we ought to be lamenting more over things in this world so that we can drive ourselves and them to God and then see how he responds in that 
But as part of our Good Friday service, we had people come down, if they chose to, to write on a strip of cloth what they were needing to lament over, a situation in their life, a person, whatever the case may be. If you're here today and you were here, I want you to know these white cloths that are now clean and free of words are the same white cloths you wrote on Friday night. We did that. We orchestrated that to be able to do this for you today because I wanted to give you a demonstration. Lament turns to living hope. Grief and sorrow and sadness and the overwhelming despair that people feel before they're born again turns to living hope in Jesus. And the things that we lament of and the things that, that consume us and the things that draw us to, drive us to despair, he takes with him. He took with him to the cross. And then not only did he take it with him to the cross, but then he defeated death to prove that what he had done was accepted by God. And that takes us to our last point today, that we are born again through Jesus' resurrection. Look at verse 3 again in its entirety. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It may seem odd to couple being born again with the resurrection because I think typically we tend to think of it that I become born again when I confess my faith. I come, become born again when I, when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, when I repent and I turn to him. And that's true, but understand what Peter is saying here is that the resurrection of Jesus is the thing that makes that possible. It is only possible to be born again because Jesus has left the tomb. This is the way Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks of Jesus' resurrection and its importance. He says this, beginning verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ is not raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We were found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true, dead or not raised. So if they're not raised and not Christ has been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And all who have fallen asleep, which is a statement for dying, all who have fallen asleep in Christ have simply perished, ceased to exist. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If in Christ we are born again to only have hope in what happens in the 40, 50, 60, 70 years that we live on this earth, then we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ is not raised, everything I say today is useless. If Christ is not raised, everything you believe is useless. If Christ is not raised, every piece of faith that you operate on in your life is useless. If Christ is not raised, I'm ready to make an 11 o'clock tea time on Sunday mornings with anybody who wants to join me. And we'll just play golf. But he is raised. He is resurrected. And because of his resurrection, we're able to be born again. Yes, it's by his grace. Yes, it's by his sacrifice on the cross. But the cross makes us righteous for the kingdom. The resurrection ushers us in. 
Get, get the two perfect theological points there that we need to grasp. The cross makes us ready. It makes us righteous. It, it strips away my sin and your sin through our faith in Jesus Christ. And that grace pours down, that mercy pours down. It readies us for the kingdom of God, but the resurrection ushers us in. The cross sets the table. The resurrection shows us our seats. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we are still simply looking on the outside of the kingdom with no entryway. You know, I become born again through the resurrection of Christ. Eugene Peterson wrote it this way. The resurrection of Jesus creates and makes available the reality in which we are formed as new creatures in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Born again, born again according to his great mercy, born again to a living hope, born again because Jesus lives. We try so often today to, to sort of define, well, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Here's, here's a perfect understanding from Peter of what the gospel is, is that every man, woman, boy, and girl who have ever lived are unable on, them, on their own to be born again spiritually. That's the first component of it. There's not been any human being, no matter how good you may think them to be, that was ever good enough to enter the kingdom of God of their own merit. Secondly, because of that, according to the abundant mercy of God being poured out on Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, every single person that I just described can be born again, can be made new can receive eternal life because the resurrection of Jesus stamps the validation on the cross. Resurrection of Jesus shows that God accepted the work on the cross, the sacrifice on the cross, and then completes the work necessary for anyone to be born again. What does it mean to be born again? It means to have a sacred life. It means that your life and my life are no longer our own. It means that your life and my life are now supposed to have one goal in mind. And that is not that God would make everything super easy on us in this earth. It is not that now that we're born again, God will give us everything that we want and need and desire. Just name it, claim it, it'll come to you. The one goal of those who have truly been born again is how does my life, as many days as I have on this earth, glorify him? My talent, my time, my treasure, my ability, my heart, my mind, my words, my actions. How do all those things seek to only glorify him? Because it is only by him you even have the possibility of doing so. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sacred life, not sacred space. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.